Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by George Burestorff of Yale University, and we discuss his career path from wannabe theoretical physicist to cell biologist and biomedical engineer. I, I realized I was actually much more motivated by doing physics, which other people cared about. Staying away from his lab equipment. But when I go into the lab and I approach the microscope a little bit too closely, my lab members start to stiffen up and like, hopefully he's not touching anything. The very important question of what constitutes dessert. There's a whole, uh, whole kind of uh, classification of desserts, which I find is very important. And gingerbread microscopes. The problem is after a few days, the microscope collapsed. So I think the humidity was too high. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, welcome to this episode of The Microscopist. I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today I'm joined by George Buerstorff from Yale the School of Medicine. George, hello, how are you today? I'm great, thank you. Uh, how are you? No, I'm really good. Uh, it's been a busy day, but I've been really looking forward to this. So I've got lots of questions. Uh, actually, we're running a course uh, recently, and we actually had a technical problem with mm -hmm. one of our demonstrations demonstration slots on spinning disc, uh, because I believe that the Andor Dragonfly was uh, sent over to your course <laughs> over, in, over with Alison North, and it hasn't arrived back in the UK in time. Oh, what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I presume the Dragonfly was beautiful and worked wonderfully. You should have seen it, it was fantastic. It really was the best <laughs> ever. I'm, I'm so sad that... <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had to invent a whole new practical session where that would slot in so obviously we got the the 980 we got the airy scans elirus but we didn't have the spinning disc so actually we did talk about you oddly enough not because you had my spinning disc uh, <laughs> but uh, we talked about expansion microscopy which we'll come to later mm -hmm. i'd like to start off slightly differently today i'd like to ask you when you were 10 years old what did you want to be? Astronaut. Astronaut. So very similar to Eric Betzig. So when you were 16 to 18, what did you want to be? Um, a uh, cosmologist, kind of a physicist, kind of a, like theoret theoretical physicist, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So, so none of this is quite panning out yet with your current career. So today, if you could do anything, what would you be? I, I really like where I am uh, right now, I think. Yeah, I, I, like, I like my profession. I like the field I'm in. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's come to that. So obviously you said at 16, 18, you, you, you like the, the physics uh, and the Cosmo side of things. And I think your first degree was in physics. Is that correct? Right, yeah. So that was over. Actually, I looked at you at Heidelberg, Freiburg, Glasgow. Yeah, Freiburg, Glasgow, Heidelberg, yeah. That, that's moving around a fair bit for your it, degree. It, it wasn't that uncommon. So, so I was still uh, in the 
uh, at that time we got uh, not a master or bachelor degree we got this diploma degree which was a five-year degree in germany and uh, there was this intermediate exam after two years uh, and i took that in freiburg and it was quite common to then do a year abroad after that and for that i went with the erasmus program to glasgow and uh, and after that instead of going back to freiburg i just decided to go to heidelberg um, because the the, the courses they offered, the, the specialty courses they offered were a little bit more aligned with what I then wanted to do. So I presume Heidelberg was a very big influence on your career going forward. Yeah, actually, I, I think the, the biggest, there, there were two important uh, breaks, I would say, in my career path within the physics uh, world. Uh, the first one was in 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 glasgow actually where i was introduced to medical physics before i was always considering myself i become like this theoretical physicist who works on physicists problems so i don't know how how old is the universe these kind of questions uh, and then i i realized i was actually much more motivated by doing physics which other people cared about uh, rather than uh, the people just within your own community and the medical physics uh, lecture I uh, or a course I attended in, in Glasgow was was really fascinating uh, to see how you could use physics to really build new MRI scanners or CT scanners etc and and that really was became a big motivator for me and because of that I went actually to Heidelberg then and then um, I thought I'd become a medical physicist like yeah, build maybe work for Siemens or Philips or so and okay. build like CT scanners or so. Um, and but I thought well, I should take one optics course before I finally go into this field because optics is kind of related and you probably need it. It's super boring. I took like what we did in high school was okay. like, I mean, seriously, it was just a lens here, a few lines there and they all meet and it was science and cosines adding up, but like, yeah, nothing really fun going on there. Uh, but I thought I, I better take that course because that's my last chance. Uh, and and that course was uh, taught by a young assistant professor, essentially who had to uh, kind of more in a junk role who had to fulfill his teaching obligations. And he offered this this two week block course in Heidelberg um, over the the summer break. And I thought, great, I'll do this for two weeks, and then after two weeks, I'm done. Never optics again. Well. It turned out that that course was actually really interesting and that assistant professor whose name you might remember uh, is, is Stefan Herr, um, he really managed to connect these optics concepts to really the latest and greatest in microscopy and I thought wow this is actually really cool and and, and that was essentially then where I shifted to a kind of the I don't know how you want to call it biophysics or uh, world yeah so yeah <clears throat> So actually, it's, it's interesting because obviously that was before Stefan uh, got his Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think we forget. He just came back from here, just come back from Finland. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we forget that a lot of, so, so Richard Henderson, Eric Betzig, who are on these podcasts, they're known for their Nobel Prize outside their field. But you also, you maybe forget sometimes just how they've inspired many other very successful and leading and inspiring people outside of their lab that sort of kick-started their career. It's not just about their ideas that they've developed. They, they have this legacy that's spreading out. Uh, well, yeah, I'm not sure I would count myself 
into that legacy. But I, I, yeah, I think you are, you're right. Yeah, I think there's some something. They have this. I don't know that they, they have a such a high level and enthusiasm, which is really contagious. I think that uh, that uh, that might be part of the secret there. So you wouldn't count yourself as enthusiastic then. <laughs> well, that maybe yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Uh, I've seen your presentations and they are inspiring. Uh, in fact, your last one—it's one of the very few that I actually listened to and thought, "Okay, I don't know if we have a need, but I'm going to try this." <laughs> and so, actually, I have a student at the moment working on expansion microscopy. I'd heard about it before, but it was seeing the results—the very latest results—that I think changed the essential need for us to start to develop this at York for our end users. So we actually have a Savas is working on this as an intern student at the moment, doing his PhD and trying to work this up. And I have lots of questions after this podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm happy to answer that. Yeah, I think questions. I'm still very excited about that stuff right now. Yeah. Uh, so after your PhD, you did a postdoc at Max Planck. Again, I think you followed with Stefan with that. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I already did my, um, I essentially stayed after, after that optics course, okay? I, I essentially immediately joined Stefan's lab first for an internship, which then turned into a master thesis, which then turned into a PhD thesis, which then turned into a postdoc. And I, I essentially stayed with him for eight years or something like that. Um, the, the PhD was uh, uh, semi-independent from Stefan in that it was uh, actually at Leica. Um, but he, uh, Stefan was still my, my PhD mentor during that time. There's, there's a train of thought that you should move around, uh, and we'll come to that in a moment. But you did your undergraduate, sort of with, with Stefan. You did your PhD or master's, PhD, postdoc, all with Stefan. So arguably you stayed in the same group. Did anyone say to you that that is career suicide? You should move, even though you're working in one of the premier labs in the world. Did anyone actually suggest to you that oh, maybe you should move somewhere else? And actually, no, no, but I, I think this might actually, I only got introduced to that thought when I moved to the US. Um, maybe it's not so par much part of the German academic culture, at least at that time, or maybe it was just my immediate uh, neighborhood. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it was, it was, I think it was clear that we were uh, up to something great there. Um, and it was, just super exciting watching uh, kind of this happen around us. Uh, like when I came to Stefan, I think I think I might have been the first person who started in Germany when he uh, uh, in his lab when he came. I mean, he brought people, uh, including Germans, with him when he came from from Finland. Um, but I was kind of his first new hire in, in Germany, and uh, and we were like five people in Stefan's lab, maybe six. Or so when I left, there were thirty five people. Oh, so I mean, it's, it's really just you could see the whole thing kind of grow and become bigger, uh, and, yeah. And and we, I was just smack in the middle of it. That was really fun. Well, that that's a lot. Uh, so I, I, actually, I'm very similar. I I stayed in. I did my my research project in a lab with Richard Cherry doing and uh, moved into single molecule imaging back in the uh, early '90s uh, and Gaussian fitting. And yeah, you know, why leave a really inspiring lab? Uh, 
there comes a time where you have to strike out yourself. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, and, and you're right. I mean, for, when I then moved to the US, um, it was also exciting to suddenly get be in this new environment and get all these new inputs. So, so yeah, I, I then started to appreciate what I later on learned was good advice uh, to uh, to actually to once in a while change your environment. I think it it it. it, it it does push you to new levels and and gives you new insights and yeah makes you develop your own uh, uh, focus maybe a little bit better. So you moved obviously to Glasgow for a short time and then back into Germany, and then you moved over to the U.S. How you know you're very young at that point. How did you find? How did you cope with those moves? Was it daunting? Was it exciting? Were there problems with moving those physical di distances? Um, I think for me it was less of a problem than for my 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 family. I mean, we, I, I brought my wife and my my two year old uh, with me, and my wife was pregnant in I think seventh or eighth month. So, and uh, I I really have to give a lot of credit to my wife that she did that move with me during that time. And uh, yeah, for me it was for me it was not that hard, right? Going from one institute setting to a new institute setting, but the language of science is the same everywhere essentially uh but yeah like but moving kind of to a completely new country learning how the preschool system or the kindergarten system works or make new friends and all that i think that that was the bigger uh bigger step there and we never planned to stay that long i think i should also say so it was always intended to just do that for a few years that that was my next question how long did you say you were going to be there <laughs> <laughs> I think we were thinking of going for three to five years. Yeah. yeah. And okay. that's 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Yeah. So what, what was the biggest challenge, would you say, when you moved over to the US from Germany? <laughs> I'm not sure it was the biggest challenge, but that was certainly something which uh, I still remember very well. And that is the different way of communicate, communication which which you're not taught uh like anywhere in school but the kind of different level of politeness or like in if um uh let me see if i can find a good example if you were if i would have asked in germany um somebody to collaborate with me and they they were not really convinced they would say oh i'm not convinced or uh no i don't have time for that they would give you a kind of a straightforward answer yeah. and you would say okay he doesn't have time for it if you in the us what i experienced was more like oh that's an interesting idea let me think about it and and then you say oh they, they like it they find it interesting they think about it and then you wonder why they never get back to you so so that kind of uh thing i i had to kind of learn how to read these social cues which were a little bit different so, so it'd be interesting to know how it was perceived when someone approached you and said, can I collaborate? And you say, oh, I'm not so convinced by that. I think I was cautious enough to not like not step on too many people's toes. But I've certainly um, explained the, the German way of uh, a more direct answer to, uh, to American colleagues or other colleagues and told them to not take it personally when they get a kind of a, a more a kind of straightforward, maybe not very diplomatic answer. So, so you've lived in three countries. Uh, so I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you, what's your preference? Germany or UK? 
Um, I don't know. It's, it's probably Germany because it's in the end we are we are still you you can't really unroot a tree. So I think we are still somehow connected with the culture there. And yeah, Germany or USA? Uh, it it depends on on uh, on which level. So on on the work level, I really like working in the US. I, I like the environment I'm in. I like kind of the dynamics. I like. That it, I like the challenge that you're permanently facing, uh, like you need to get your next grant and all that. While it's it's really um, stressful, it, it also it, it pushes you to to really continue working and thinking and, and staying ahead and on top of, of a topic. So uh, that I think is, is good for me. And I, 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 I like that. Uh, like privately or a kind of culture, I think both countries have their strengths, but we would probably, uh, yeah, connect a little bit. I mean, we have great friends in the US and and really deep friendships. I really like that. But like from a from a social environment perspective, I think we feel a bit more comfortable in, in Germany still. That, that that was very well put because you could have either lost your German passport or your green card in America. One of the two, <laughs> you'd have answered that. I've actually very both well. now since half a year. I've both passports. Yeah, so. yeah, they were very well answered on that question. <laughs> Coming to your research, I, I I wouldn't know where to start because you have fingers in many pies. Uh, for actually, pies probably a bad use of terminology when four pies also associated in there. But you've had interactions with Palm Storm. Paint, uh, Stead, uh, Panex, Panex M, if I might possibly be honest. What's your favorite technique? You'll probably, I'm afraid you'll probably get a similar <laughs> diplomatic answer there. But, uh, I, but I actually believe that. I, I think all these techniques have their, have their, their strength and their, um, their challenges. So we are, at the moment, we are still working actively in the expansion microscopy research and push that frontier we're pushing on the palm and storm side and we are we are also working still on the step microscopy side and and really try to push these to the next level or what we think is is kind of a missing feature uh, or um characteristic they they need um and and it's really none of these techniques is can can we can fully replace any of the others um, the uh, I really love about the expansion microscopy uh, that you can do it with any microscope now. You can uh, that it has this this correlative aspect now with these these pond stainings that we introduced there, which I think is super important and gets a lot of my colleagues, uh, cell biology colleagues, excited. Um, uh, but um, do we know how well the structures are preserved at the ten nanometer scale or really low? Or let's say you want to measure the, the diameter very precisely of a nuclear pore complex or like that particular uh, protein within a nuclear pore complex. At the moment, I would probably say, oh, I'm, I'm not sure I trust it to the like exact measurements at that really small level. Uh, and I would probably go to a Palmer storm microscope to do that. Also, similarly, if I want to count uh, how many uh, proteins are in that nuclear pore complex. And then, um, and the set microscope, I really like when it comes to uh, imaging deeper in this in the specimen, uh, or you 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 uh, you see what you get, or you get what you see, whatever the right saying is there. But you you don't need to worry about like uh, 
um, image processing artifacts, uh, you don't need to worry too much about for fixation artifacts there on the stat side. So, so um, yeah, so I, I think they all really have their their strength, and I probably missed a few here, uh, and I, I missed a few weaknesses here. But they, the point is, uh, I think they all are important uh, developments, and, and and continue to stay important developments. And actually, for I, I think palm storms dead actually quite difficult concepts to describe briefly, uh, but panex is probably quite easy to explain to a layperson. Of course, the audience, some people may not know what expansion microscopy is. So could you describe it? Really basic concepts of how expansion, what expansion microscopy does, how it works. So, so ex, yeah, so expansion microscopy, which uh, uh, is it, a, a technique where you uh, have a fixed sample. It's always very important to point out the sample <laughs> is fixed and dead. Okay. And now you embed it in a, a polymer matrix. Um, and uh, you uh, um, uh, you then let that polymer matrix grow, uh, essentially by, by soaking in water. Like when you put a, a, a gummy bear in a glass of water, it will swell. Or if you have one of these little uh, um, sponge animals that your kids put in the bathtub, as soon as they get wet, they will kind of grow. So that will happen to now this, this cell. and. If you have uh, broken the bonds of the molecules in this in the sample before that swelling process happens, uh, by for example in our case um, um, denaturing uh, the, the sample, um, then then the 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 molecules of the sample will grow with that gel and stay relatively in in, in, the, in the same locations to each other, just that all the distances expand by the expansion factor of that gel, and the, the magic now is that you can now image your now expanded cell with your normal microscope uh, and your the microscope is still limited to the same resolution limit but that's because the sample is so much bigger you can now see these small details there and then later on after you record the image you just shrink it on the computer back to its original size essentially adjust the scale bar for it and and now you have uh, let's say if you have a 20-fold expanded sample you it you end up with an image with a 20-fold improved resolution over what you normally could get. And without any special equipment. Uh, yes, I mean, that's a little bit sad for me as an optical physicist. <laughs> I'm, I'm developing these techniques, I'm essentially uh, making myself obsolete here, uh, but uh, but it's, um, it's, it's true, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, we are just using a, a standard commercial confocal microscope at the moment to record these samples. That's interesting because yeah, that is very chemical. The whole process is chemistry driven, really. Uh, you're a physicist and you're using this with biological samples. Yeah, yeah. Are you, are you a chemist, a physicist or a biologist? I'm definitely not a chemist, I, I have to say. And that is, uh, I'm always getting very quickly to my limit there. And I, I rely on, on my, really excellent grad student on MSAT to really explain to me the chemistry that's going on there. Um, I'm not sure I would call myself a biologist yet, but I've picked up a lot over the last uh, kind of 10 years or so. And at least I, I hope I'm not embarrassing myself anymore when I talk to my cell biology colleagues. Uh, yeah, I would still say I'm a physicist, but actually maybe even more so than a physicist, I, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. Um, 
And the, the difference there, I think, is the attitude. Uh, I'm, I'm, I want to get stuff to work more so than understanding uh, more and focusing on the goal rather than the than the way towards the goal maybe um and and that i think is, is kind of a certain mindset that that helps so that actually brings me to one of my my quick fire questions i was going to ask are you a detail person or a big picture person i'm a I, I'm a detailed person who forces himself to see the big picture. It's a it's a constant uh, push and pull. Uh, it's a, it's a constant compromise. I need to remind myself all the time when I'm uh, reviewing or revising a manuscript to not focus on fixing every comma here, but actually making sure that the message doesn't get lost. Um, yeah. So uh, and I I think it's important at the same time to. Yeah, and seeing the big picture is, is the most important thing, I think. So reminding yourself of that all the time. So talking of big pictures, uh, you're in your office at the moment. So for those who are listening to, to the audio podcast, uh, George is in his office with a big whiteboard behind him. And the whiteboard has a few, by looks at chemical structures on it. <laughs> no, these are supposed to be cellular structures, actually. Yeah. Well, you didn't say you were a biologist, so I'll forgive you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I'm not an artist, obviously. <laughs> well, a good artist never makes a good scientist, and a good scientist never makes a good artist. That's my excuse for being rubbish at drawing. <laughs> <laughs> How long have those pictures been on your whiteboard for? <laughs> Wait, let, let's see. When did COVID start? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, not one, uh, yeah, nearly two years there. Yeah, I, I'm not sure they even come off anymore. You know how this stuff really kind of. <laughs> encrusts himself itself into the board of the one i think there's a tendency and a lot of people and the offices i walk into on the academic offices i walk into even my own whiteboard which is now clean because i realized you go in and people's whiteboards the contents changes in little patches but not the big stuff and there's some stuff that almost never vanishes so do you have parts of your whiteboard that you're really proud of you like that it's part of you it's something you've got on there that you no. leave on there no no and I, I don't think that that's actually the argument why you see these patches in other people's labs i think it's because that stupid pen doesn't come off the board anymore after a while and you need to really rub really hard and you give up after like finishing that touch of an area i think it's more like a, a pain you reach the point pain point there and then stop but you know your optical lens cleaning fluids just yeah. use that I know, but even they sometimes don't work that well. I think it's actually not so much, the, or it's a mix of the pen and the underlying material. So I'm actually a big fan of using glass boards now, writing off on windows, or we actually have in one of our labs like a, a glass uh, panel to write on. I think that works much better. That's my, if I would form another side business, I would go into that. That's only because you can't clean your whiteboard. You start to write on your windows. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And uh, why not, right? You have a nice view while you actually uh, explain something to someone. So, uh, back to work, as in more serious work. With all the different technologies, how, how big is your team? Um, about 15 or so. I always underestimated. So I think it's probably around 15, 12 to 15. Go on the website. I think our website is current. Actually, no, it's not. We just have a new lab member starting today. Yeah. So. 
So how do you juggle managing? Because it's not just managing the staff, but the team, the postdocs and the PhDs. It's managing the projects that they're also running with because they'll have disparate projects, especially when you've got you working on the palm, the storm, the stead, the panic. How, how do you actually it's a lot of your time because it's lots of different bits of support you're giving. So you are, are you a hands off kind of supervisor that's there for advice and inspire or, or do you actually get in the lab or get into the gritty details with them? How, how do you manage that time to make sure it's effective? I'm, I spend a, I try to spend a, 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 about half an hour to an hour with every lab member individually every two weeks. It used to be every week, um, but I, I don't find time for that anymore. And, and we sit down and talk about the data and talk about like where the project goes. Uh, we talk, we troubleshoot maybe um, or discuss um, where the project gets stuck. Um, so that that's how I stay involved. Uh, I would say that's it's not really hands off. It it is fairly hands on on even on detail questions as as uh, we discussed earlier. I'm detail oriented sometimes too much, right? And then my lab member needs to remind me that that's not why they came to talk to me. Um, um, that they can figure that part out, which color of a pen they should use or whatever. Um, but the um, but the uh, but what I'm missing a little bit is the uh the, the hands-on experience in the lab and uh and it's uh, uh when i it you know i reached that stage i'm it doesn't sound like you have reached that uh, but where i'm uh, and I, I i'm envious for you but when i go into the lab and i approach the microscope a little bit too closely my lab members start to stiffen up and like hopefully he's not touching anything kind of and yeah, so I, I learned to uh, to uh, not to interfere anymore in the experiments. Yeah, uh, it may be the opposite. It may be when they run out of ideas of how to solve a problem, they then drag me into the microscope at that point. Because <laughs> uh, like, yeah. I can troubleshoot, but the software's changed. Oh, yeah. like, okay, so okay, can you do this? Try this. Try that. So now I'm directing more because <laughs> some of the software is so alien. It's hard to get to grips on some of them. I, I, the courses that we run enable me to get keep up to date with the software. So I find that really useful. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, you, you do lose touch. It's quite hard to keep in contact with the software changes. Uh, but the concepts, microscopes, optics, they change, but they don't change a great deal. If you've got the theory, you can work with it. So thinking of courses, so you do, you have the big course over in the US you not long uh, finished doing. So how many delegates on that? Uh, what do you mean by delegates? Students uh, or? No, students, participants. Uh, we, had, uh, we had students, or well, actually that's a good point. We, we were discussing what, how we call, should call our course attendance. We felt students is not necessarily the best uh, term for them. Uh, but yeah, so we, had, uh, we normally have 24 uh, course participants. Um, uh, and uh, this year we had 16 because of uh, time for COVID restrictions. Yeah. We wanted to uh, make sure that for the for the most important practicals that every student had their own uh, microscope stand. Yeah, I, I'm better distant. Very similar here. We, we, we decreased by about a third for the same reason. Uh, we call them delegates. Uh, attendees is a good answer or participants. Again, students and you've got academics attending. And we always worry that they might feel a bit odd being a student 
or being called a student again. Uh, exactly. So they probably shouldn't. They're probably quite proud <laughs> that they're a student again, uh, which probably means they're going out drinking every night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And probably too old to be doing that. Uh, so you obviously, do you enjoy teaching on the courses? Oh yeah, I think it's it's one of the highlights of the year because it it it, it gets me. Uh, I mean, you you know what I'm talking about, right? This is it's a very intense atmosphere, working very closely with people, getting I, I get my hands on instruments I normally don't get them on, uh, meeting tons of people, and 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 participating in the in the enthusiasm and the excitement that the delegates uh, express when they uh, learn these techniques. It's very rewarding, I think. It's a ton of work, uh, but fortunately I do this together with Alison North and uh, Alison is, is, is uh, lifting uh, the heavy load here on the course organization. Um, I'm very happy for that, yeah. I, I could have predicted that part. Alison's <laughs> <laughs> very good at organizing, that's for sure. Uh, as well as being an excellent microscopist and tutor, but yeah, you know things won't fail if Alison's involved. Yeah. She'll make sure she'll have thought it all through. She'll have almost run it through in her head in real time to find the faults. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. very much not a detail person, big picture person, but Alison does a big picture and that detail, which which makes sure yeah, a very good uh, person to work with. That's yes, no, I'm, I'm super happy. I hope she's not kicking me out <laughs> anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> where was the course run? Uh, sorry? Where was the course run? Where, where uh, it run? was at uh, the uh, MBL in, in Woods Hole, so okay. Marine, Marine Biology Laboratory. Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the two courses they uh, uh, usually run every year uh, here in the US. Um, uh, and then there are a few other big courses like in Cold Spring Harbor and uh, Mount Desert uh, Island Marine uh, Biological Laboratory. Um, um, but I think ours was the only one which actually couldn't happen this year. I think we just got lucky in the uh, in that break between the last wave and the, the Delta wave um, coming. So yeah, I think we, we in hindsight can count ourselves really lucky. Uh, and so can the participants. I, I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And they, they were very uh, happy, it seemed, yeah. Can you imagine the number of PhDs, postdocs, technical staff that have now had 18 months of being in position, being in a lab, because you can't work from home very well, so you have to be in the lab, but they've not necessarily had the, the training or the, the added training to really sync, to make it really work effectively. So I'm sure they're very grateful to have got in there. Thinking yeah, of, yeah uh, I think the, the training is actually probably one of the aspects which suffered the most in the in the pandemic. I, at least that's what I saw here at Yale. And the, you know, like a senior lab member who already works kind of independently, they know what they have to do. Uh, they can work in a more isolated manner. But a new lab member, I, mean, I think we underestimate how much you pick up by just watching somebody else doing it or being able to to just uh, call across the, the aisle or so, do you know where the so-and-so is? Or can you show me briefly how I have, how I close the lid on this, uh, whatever, uh, um, um, bottle, uh, you know, like these things or, or somebody looking over your shoulder telling you, what are you doing? You're, you are supposed to put a pipette tip on top of the pipette, you know, like stuff like that. Um, 
is uh, something which uh, was was missing essentially for 18 months. And I think, uh, yeah. I think that had been very daunting uh, for, for new starters into a new environment. But to take you back, uh, what was your first microscope that you used? Can you, not in school, so when you went to a, a more advanced microscope, what was your first big microscope that you used? I used uh, a Leica, um, a TCSNT confocal microscope. So that was uh, like the, the latest uh, Leica confocal that uh, um, uh, that Stefan uh, Schevenhell just got in his lab and I as a new lab member was kind of uh, witnessing uh, having it set up. And I, and I was the first who was allowed to tamper with it. So uh, coupling a two photon laser into that microscope. Yeah, I think the, the Leica service people were pretty scared. <laughs> like, I, which I, I think I was a little bit oblivious, uh, which was good, but like having like this kind of, um, I, I, I was not even a master student at that time. This intern essentially uh, uh, taking screws out of this just, new like brand new confocal microscope to to a, like add a mirror or so somewhere in the middle that was um yeah scary so thinking of the multi-photon side this is a really powerful laser at this point it's, it's beyond your normal confocal lasers it's a very powerful laser did you at any point worry that you'd damage the photomultiply tube by blinding it with too much power and how many biological samples did you blow up trying to get the laser power right <laughs> Well, we definitely blew up our, uh, our my, I blew up my fair share of biological samples. Um, I didn't destroy photomultipliers to my knowledge, um, but I haven't com compared a, like an old and a new one side by side. So I, I don't know, I, I would not be surprised if, uh, yeah, uh, one or two suffered a little bit uh, in that project. But yeah, I like uh, blowing up, samples by focusing accidentally on pigmented areas in the sample yep i've been there have you ever tried to pop popcorn using the multi-photon no but that's a good idea yeah i keep thinking about it and i have we teach it on our course i i, I i'm gonna i'm gonna find some later and take it into work a bit of oil immersion bit of butter and salt <laughs> see if we can pop a bit of popcorn with the lights as long as i don't break the cover slip first yeah oh we we managed to burn two objective lenses in in uh, in the last year not even with a multi-photon laser just with a cw laser and i've never seen anything like that they have a they have a little crater in the front now it's not somewhere in the inside the, the front lens is not smooth anymore it now has a little kind of yeah crater in the center it's crazy. I, I didn't know that. Shame the manufacturer of that lens, but I won't. <laughs> I, 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 I am pretty sure it's it's not the manufacturer's fault. Oh, because, like it's, it's really not any layers. So it's the front. Uh, so I think what happened is we uh, the the microscope which we built had uh, it was kind of automated platform and it had um, and it, it crashed essentially in a, in a long term like twenty four hour experiment and it. Yeah. Stop moving the stage and the oh. and the, and the, we hadn't and the software had a glitch that it didn't turn off the laser, so the laser was constantly focusing onto the same spot of the cover slip, 
And at some, I don't know what happened then. Some somehow it must have heated up so much that I, I still don't understand how the front lens really caught. I mean, it's glass. I mean, how how how, how is the, how are you supposed to like, yeah, yeah, create a crater on the glass surface? And, and you you should probably stop there because you've had the stage stop working the the laser fail safe for the laser blanking has failed if your health and safety are listening to this you're in big trouble tomorrow <laughs> oops <laughs> oh, yeah yeah anyway, so you get these stressful times when you realize that this has happened what do you do outside of work to relax um spend time with family i think uh, like i like cooking um yeah preparing a kind of good dishes like yeah so what's your signature dish uh it's it's probably on the yeah on the, on the dessert side or so that's probably my my major passion i think it's kind of a break creme brulee or something like that yeah a creme brulee yeah that's as exciting as it gets I think there's a certain art to it to get it just right. Oh, so, do you go for a creme brulee that's super thin, or do you go for deep with the top? Yeah, I think it's more like the the yeah, like that. The, the deeper, the deeper, middle, yeah, the, deeper like ones, the top, so. rather than the really thin ones with a very delicate top. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever done a deconstructed one where you do the sort of the, the glacial sugared and put a shard of it into your creme brulee no no i guess i'm a traditionalist there so it's just that my wife doesn't like me handling the blowtorch in the house so that's the, that's the biggest problem you're an engineer oh no i've heard what you did to lenses yeah maybe <laughs> well, maybe we can use a laser for that <laughs> You can make a whole pattern really well with it. Yeah, like a 3D printer, right? You can uh, write into the sugar coat. So if you had dessert, would you be an ice cream man or a chocolate man? So, wow, there, okay, now you get me started. There's a whole, uh, whole kind of uh, classification of desserts, which I find is very important. And Ice cream is a proper dessert, as is a creme brulee, but chocolate itself is not a dessert. That's a sweet, which, yeah. which you're not eating after a meal. And cake is also different. Cake is not a dessert at all. Cake is cake. So that's an argument I always have to have with my here, American friend. So I'll argue back. What about a nice chocolate tort? With a crisp pastry bottom, dark chocolate, seventy percent dark chocolate, rich as a tort. Yeah, but 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 yeah, I won't eat that. You know, that's something you eat in the afternoon with a tea or coffee. That's not a dessert. A dessert is something you eat after meal. By serving that cake in the evening after your main meal, then uh, you actually cheat yourself of that afternoon meal because you already had so. You should have both separated. If you, if you put them in two different categories, then you said, I had one dessert today and I had one piece of cake today rather than two desserts. Uh, you see, you missed the point. There's no reason you can't have it at both times a day. <laughs> in fact, 
we taught courses. We always take the delegates out for, for meals. And the one thing I insist on being on the dessert, we, we do kind of go to restaurants and we kind of dictate what should be on the menu. Oh, because uh, yeah. we kind of know what the delegates will go for, tried and tested, and we've honed into what everyone will ticks many boxes. Chocolate tort has to be on the end menu. And the number of times I've ended up with two or three chocolate torts in front of me. Uh, wow. You have to oblige. Sleeping that night's quite difficult. <laughs> Especially yeah. when you have properly dark chocolates. Yeah, that, that I mean, that's only an experience I had with uh, if you hand out uh, uh, drinking tickets to people. Everyone gets two beer tickets. And it, it actually turns out, like, you know, at conferences and all that, it turns out if you keep your eyes open, who is drinking soda and you then ask, hey, do you have a spare drinking ticket? You can um, you can get your fair share, which also makes it difficult to sleep later. You can do quite well out of it. That That's for sure. So thinking of conferences, uh, out of everything that's happened over COVID in the past and everything else, virtual or physical conferences, virtual or physical meetings, what's your preference? Physical. I, I, virtual doesn't really work for me uh, yet very well. I don't know. I, I miss the meeting friends and colleagues. For me, often it, at the conference, it's not so much the actual talks which excite me. It's the it's the hall room discussions. I have running into somebody or 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 looking at a poster I didn't expect. And like I, I know it's these these chance encounters, which which I think is. For me, often what I bring back from a from a conference where I learn something unexpected. It's not usually not the the big plenary talks, and it's usually not even the, the regular talks. It's these, yeah, these uh, side events. Yeah, no, that that's fair enough. And do you enjoy traveling? Because obviously you get invited to lots of talks all across the world. Do you? What's your favorite type of conference? Long haul flights, short haul flights, into back into Europe, elsewhere? I don't like flying so much anymore. I like sitting on a plane for a long time is not fun. And the time zones or like time zone change also bothers me more and more, I have to say. So I'm, I don't know. I haven't traveled that much over the last 18 months. So at the moment, it, it, it sounds better than it probably is. But uh, yeah, that, that's the only disadvantage of the um, physical conferences, the travel, right? So being able to just call in is, is, is a huge advantage. So with all the techniques that you developed, you must be writing lots of grants and the grants are obviously diverse. So you're never plowing the same field. So you, you, you have multiple runners in a race, if you like, which must help your grant success rate. Uh, what would you say your... Ah, you also patent some of your work? Yeah. How, how do you balance patents over publishing the work? Or even how do you, you know there's gonna be a patent in this, you've got to write a grant application, but you don't want to give too much away from the patent side. I'm, 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 that's not how I see, I, I don't see there is a conflict from my perspective. Uh, the, I think you just need to um, make sure you file the patent early enough. Um, and fortunately, at least in the US, uh, we can file these these uh, provisional patent applications, and uh, they uh, they can turn be turned around if, if necessary. I mean, uh, you might not making friends in the in the tech transfer office with that, but uh, uh, it's they can be turned around in I don't know forty eight hours. So 
So what we, we you just need to keep in mind from my perspective that before you let's say put your paper on bioarchive uh, that you just a day or well ideally a week or two weeks before you actually make sure you file that provisional patent application and then you can follow up uh, in the next 12 months um, to do uh, file the proper uh, application and then I'm yeah I, we we are not holding back then information from the paper for strategic purposes. I, I think that would be dishonest and would also not be in the interest of um, the funding agencies who funded the research. So, and, and not in the interest of universities. So I, I think these, these things actually go along quite well. In a way, the paper is even advertisement for the, the, the patent, right? I mean, no, nobody would know about the patent or, um, I mean, ask you about licensing it if you wouldn't, uh, openly advertised for it through and the paper. How, how helpful are the tech office in putting the patent together? You're a scientist, you're not someone who writes patents. So how much do you get a lot of support at Yale for that? I, we, we, um, uh, the way Yale does this is they put us in touch then with uh, uh, outside um, um, faculty, uh, outside uh, patent attorneys, and they, they help us raise these uh, patents. and. Yeah, there's always uh, you need to bridge kind of they, they don't have the, the the knowledge on the field and that's always kind of difficult to explain to them then and you you certainly it's going back and forth but they can certainly help you get this into the the the, the right claim language which is yeah it's painful i mean it's it's not fun to to uh, to do this i mean i i actually uh, thinking back to how we started this discussion, right? You asked me what I wanted to become, and I said like an astronaut or like a physicist. I also knew what I did not want to become, and th that was to be anyone who has to do a lot of writing. I hated writing when I was in school, so like writing these essays in my German classes was torture for me. And well, look what we are doing now the whole day. Right? Yeah, writing grants, writing patents, writing papers. Yeah. Uh do you find that there's certain days or certain times a day that you write better than others? Or, and a time, times when you find it really hard to actually put pen to paper or fingers to keyboards? I would say what's hard, the problem is it's hard, the time is hard for me if the deadline is not pressing. So, so I, 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 uh, I tend to get this stuff done last minute. Um, which is not something I recommend, um, but it, it, I guess it just reflects how much I don't enjoy the writing aspect for, for grants, et cetera. Yeah. So I, yeah. Thinking of the challenging of writing and not liking writing, what have you actually found the most challenging aspect so far in your career? Most, sort of most difficult time maybe, or the most challenging aspect? Ooh, that, that's a it, long. It's it's. I think it's it's the it's actually. What's the right term? Like um, dealing with conflicts in the lab, uh, that I find is one of the hardest things. Right? Uh, you you see both people's perspective, and you still need to kind of mediate between them. And yeah, I think that that is that I find is yeah. Kind of a hard. You ever had to give someone a formal notice? I fortunately never had to do that, but yeah, I would definitely. Uh, that's also something I would. Yeah, I uh, 
would be very hard for me. Yeah, this is very personal and and generally, I think most our staff are very good staff and and likable, but maybe not always best at their jobs, which which can become a problem. Mm. Uh, yeah, people in positions, two sorts of different things. Okay, so going from the the bleak that we had there, what about the base? What what do you think in all your career has been the time that actually, if you could just live that moment time and time again? In your life, what period of time would that be? I mean, it's it's certainly. I think it's there. There are many of these short events, right? It's, it's this, the, 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 the minute you get, the, or the hour, or the day you get the notice of a grant you got, or your paper got published, or uh, like you got get really the positive feedback of something finally working, like the experiment. The first time we saw like the. The, the panic sponge across the images or something like that that is that's these, these moments are just um yeah okay. are just magic right and that, that 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 that's what keeps you going be honest which is most exciting seeing that first result on the microscope or having it accepted as a publication I think it's it's the seeing it the first time on the microscope that's realizing that yeah uh, yeah it has it, to be it, yeah yeah that's the first time it's really real and you'll get it published yeah the realization that you have something really cool here or that that this is the like I mean from a subjective perspective that's the best image ever taken of this particular kind of sample or something like that you know that 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 is that's a great feeling. So, and, and you, you mentioned there, maybe seeing that big Panex image, uh, thinking of big things, what's the next big thing in microscopy? What do we need to solve? What, what, what if, if there was no limitations, what would you enable? I, I think one of the, I don't have an answer to that, but, the, uh, but, or, but the, I think one thing which I really find one of the biggest challenges is the is, is this move towards quantitative um, biology, quantitative imaging, right? So this is obviously important. Uh, I think uh, uh, we all know that, but to actually make this work that it's truly reliable, reproducible, robust, uh, and 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 quantitative that you can really, you know, yeah, that you know what you have there, and you. You don't need to worry. There's maybe still another artifact I missed in here. Any any of these things. This this I find is is, is the the a big front, is remaining frontier uh, and will remain probably frontier forever. But this is something where I'm I'm sometimes yeah for like this the machine learning field for example is something which worries me a little bit there uh, because I'm not really an expert there. I think it has great potential and I think it's super important. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's also quite dangerous. Uh, you can you can uh, create a lot of things which might not be real, um, and you're not realizing. Or if you don't know what you're doing there uh, using these algorithms, you can, yeah. Uh, I would hope the scrutiny will always be there, and, and then put into practice to check and back check. But I understand what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Some quick fire questions. Uh, are you a Mac or PC person? Uh, I'm a PC person. Early bird, early bird or night owl? Night owl. 
what's your favorite food besides if, assuming it's not chocolate chocolate. chocolate chocolate you just damn chocolate earlier and now you're saying chocolate's your favorite food chocolate cake you know why why do you need that crust underneath if it would just be the just the filling milk or dark chocolate uh, more on the dark side yeah okay yeah, dark side dark. tea or coffee tea wine or beer beer ale or lager both oh just not at the same time tv or book tv nowadays what's your favorite it's it do you actually watch any trashy TV? I'm actually not really watching TV. I'm, I'm watching, I'm not watching like Netflix or like Amazon Prime or so. So I, I don't really know what's currently on TV because I don't don't like the waste of the advertisement breaks. But the, do I watch any trashy TV or tr trashy shows? Yeah. I don't know. what. I'm not even sure I know what the, what you would what would qualify as trashy. Ah, oh, I know because that would be beyond mine. I'm not going to be beyond my vices. That'd be a that'd be. I can't do that. <laughs> 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 that'd be worse, I think, if I was to admit my own uh, my own vices. <laughs> I I I, I did. Uh, I I, wa I watch a lot of science fiction, or uh, not a lot, but I, if I have the chance, I watch kind of science fiction series from the Star Trek universe, or I watch. Uh, so, so that ruins a Star Trek Star Wars question. So I presume it was Trekkie. Star Trek, definitely Star Trek. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite? Not not a Star Trek, but of all time, of any genre. What's your favorite movie? I don't know, but I can definitely tell you the movie I watched the most was Pulp Fiction. And I, when I was an ex, when I was an exchange student in Glasgow, I think my friends and I we went six times to the cinema to watch it. Six times. Six times, yeah. With the same people. Essentially, yeah, yeah. Wow, I I did Batman three times, I think, <laughs> but I can't believe it. Six times. Yeah, over like a, I don't know two months or whatever how long it played. Yeah. So, uh, how are your dance moves? Oh, terrible! Pulp Fiction. I'm yeah. I'm I'm not a dancer, not at all. You can't do the John John Travolta moves. So the oh, next I, I wouldn't is... even. I I would. I wouldn't even dare to try. I I would be far too uh, embarrassed to even try. <laughs> that you just put. It's a lovely concept that you're going to get my beer vouchers at the next conference, and I'm going to get the Pulp Fiction that that famous scene at Pulp Fiction. Just to see your John Travolta moves. <laughs> it would require a lot of beer to, <laughs> to get me to that. I, I just love that concept of it. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you move to? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty open, but I love, I, I'm, I'm, I have this attraction to islands. I need to talk to some psychoanalyst at some point where that comes from but this is really islands fascinate me whether it's a greek island or whether it's the azores whether it's an island here along the coast of new england doesn't matter i think islands are just fantastic okay that's just perfectly good idea and if you could meet anyone in the world who would you meet 
I, I, I don't think in these categories. I, I, I'm not somebody who, uh, who, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, I don't believe so much in, in the genius of individuals. So I, I don't really put individuals on very high pedestals. Uh, so, so for me, it's, it's more, it's, it's I, my focus is much more on the team or like on the, on the group having achieved something. So, uh, so I, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not idolizing uh, very easily. So coming, coming back to work, because we're actually very close to the hour mark already. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's gone way too fast. Actually, I, I have to ask just before we go back to work. You say you make desserts. I would say this is not a dessert. This is not a cake. I don't know. But I think this is something you would do at Christmas, but surely it should it's be a gingerbread house. It's a... It, okay, so it is gingerbread, but that's a microscope, not a house. It's a gingerbread microscope. Yeah. And the best part, it was operational. So okay. we actually now made lenses out of sugar here. You made the lenses out of sugar? Yes, you can do that. Um, yeah, so uh, I forgot what the name is, but we essentially got this confectioners or like a sugar that you, uh, like you can look up recipes how you make uh, hard candy, like the hard, the rock candy kind of thing. And, uh, and, that, and it's clear, right? If you don't put any dye in it and it's fairly clear. And it has a refractive index, which is different from air. So <laughs> you can form it. So, so then uh, we, we, uh, we essentially put that into a, a mold, which was roughly a, a circle. And then, uh, then we popped it out when it was hard. And, and you can polish it very easily because you just need to make it wet. So you, you just polish it between your hands and get this right nice smooth surface. I think I actually showed you an image uh, here. So I was just saying, I did not know what this image was, <laughs> but now I do. So is this an image? So that, that was, a for those listening, there was a gingerbread house equipment, but a gingerbread microscope. Uh, yeah, so that is an image taken with that microscope. This a ruler? That's a ruler underneath, yeah. So, so we imaged that ruler with, through that microscope lens essentially there, there's another image of the lens actually you can see that. so now I, before we go to the image of the lens yeah you're a microscopist you publish you, you show your images i would like to point out you are showing me a ruler and no evidence of magnification whatsoever there's no scale bar on this or nothing well, the ruler is just, yeah actually sorry i i i didn't want to uh, uh like uh, swamp you with images i have an image of the ruler you want to see the image of the ruler non-magnified i have that yeah here. go on <laughs> okay yeah, well, go for it just put it in your background if you could put it in your zoom yeah. background uh, okay that just takes a minute to i would like to point out to the non-listener that this image has a few aberrations oh, in it. just a few just a few i think it's nearly perfect uh, and the lens just what just while you're waiting this is i presume the lens that you made is it yeah that's the lens yeah good grief and then just while George is looking for that, he, George also sent this picture, which suggests he actually uh, shrunk himself and uh, blew up the Nutella jar. So he's obviously used expansion microscopy to blow up a Nutella jar uh, and, and yeah, and hugging it. Exactly, yeah, that, that's, yeah. So that's the real motivation behind expansion microscopy and have more desserts. But I, I okay, can't wait I for the time you blow a cell up so big or a bit of tissue that you can walk into the tissue 
What is yeah. that? Ten thousand points. That is that is still our dream, like for a kind of a educational project to expand the sample so much that you actually have the cell like that big or so, and you can actually just put it in a museum rather than uh, yeah. We yeah. we actually the, we we got samples now. My student showed me samples in that on the on the slide. Uh, sorry, on the on the petri dish, they expanded so much you can just image them with your cell phone. It's it's amazing. You can see them just with your cell phone camera. And enough fluorescence there to see that. And not not fluorescent. That they they have some kind of scattering contrast in that particular case, and just it's amazing. Um, sorry, um, there. Because the next thing, uh, you, you talked about your 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 love of making desserts. See, here's the ruler. Ah. And it was a metric ruler. So this is a centimeter scale bar. I guess the, yeah. So yeah, the magnification is not that impressive with the microscope. I have to, yeah, there's the number five. But it's in a, it's a sugar coated lens. Come on. <laughs> it's a solid sugar lens. Yes, yeah. you're right, yeah. And it was our first attempt, so that was not, we need to uh, repeat that experiment. The problem is after a few days, the microscope collapsed. So I think the humidity was too high. So George, we are over there. I have to say, thank you for joining me today. It's been entertaining, uh, inspiring, and as inspiring as your work, actually. Uh, I can't wait to see the next developments that you come out with. I can't see, wait to see your next publications and you presenting them because that's what really sells it and inspires as well. So George, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It was a pleasure to chat with you today. That's a pleasure. And, and everyone who's listened or watched, uh, do, do, do have a quick flick at the YouTube. If you don't have time, just go to those last few minutes to see the gingerbread microscope, which is surreal. Uh, but thanks for listening. Don't forget to listen to the others from Alison North, who's one of the early ones that we podcast with. Uh, and also don't forget to subscribe to whichever channel you're listening to. So George, again, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.